All right, well, welcome back to our series on Acts. Um, if, uh, if you've been with us, you know that in my last two sermons, um, we have seen the church faithfully doing what God has called it to do. It's, it's just one of these times where Jesus has said, do this, be this, and the church is doing it. And, and we find a church, they are proclaiming the Word of God here, there, everywhere. They are praying together. They're united in all things. They're, 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 when they come together, it's a sweet, rich worship fellowship. And when they go out, man, they're just an army for God. And um, they're just doing ministry God's way, and it shows. But that has prompted the enemy, Satan, um, also known as the devil, Lucifer, to launch two direct attacks at the church. And we, we've seen these in Acts chapter 4, the devil comes straight at the church with persecution. He's going to nab them, bag them, tag them, throw them away. I mean, they're arrested, thrown in jail. Um, in, in, in Acts chapter 5, he comes at the church a different way. He actually slithers in, and he attacks from within through some people in the body, but both times we've seen the same thing. We've seen the big V sign. We have witnessed an absolute victory. Now, the first time in Acts chapter 4, God steps in by Himself, and He miraculously delivers the apostles, rescues them, sets them free. The whole thing is just draw-jopping, makes your eyes pop. It's incredible. And then in Acts chapter 5, God actually partners with church leadership and together they address a very sinister situation, and again, there's victory. So, if you're keeping score, it's God two, the devil zero, all right? So, that's, that's where we're at so far. And um, so, so, look for the devil. It, it's time to either give up, all right, admit you're defeated, or come up with a new strategy. You better do something else because the first two didn't work. Knowing our enemy… Um, even if you're not highly familiar with Acts, you can pretty much guess what happens next. So if you will, hear Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, Hellenistic Jews, meaning Greek Jews among them, complained against Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God uh, to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right, here we have what we started off with, with both uh, uh, the church in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, we have a church that is still locked in to the ministry zone, okay? They are still faithfully proclaiming Christ. They are preaching like a house on fire. They're united in the things of God. 
These dynamics are, play, are in place for the church. And so the first church in Acts chapter 6, they are still like Robin Hood, okay? Like Robin Hood taking target practice. Everything they do for God, I mean, it's just bullseye, bullseye, bullseye. People are pouring into the church like Black Friday shoppers, okay? They're rushing into the church. All kinds of people are getting saved they're getting set free, they're getting delivered. This church is dynamic, it is a growing God movement. Everybody is talking about the first church. Even if you wanna badmouth the first church, you know, you're one of these, oh well, what's going, you, you can't deny the evidence of your own eyes. Y'all, the church is in the zone. God is blessing their life and he is blessing their mission because they are about what Jesus said to be about. And in the church, everybody's happy, right? I mean, everybody's got a Life is Good t-shirt on. Life in the Spirit is good right now. Everybody's just joyful and rejoicing. Everything's wonderful. And then it begins. A problem arises in the church. And y'all, it is a stinker of a problem. Grumblings, rumblings, moanings, complainings coming up from within the church. Now, don't be afraid, okay? This is is not the third attack of Satan, okay? People complaining in the church. The, the, the people that are complaining to the apostles here, they are not mean people. They are not petty. They're not talking trash. They're not gossiping among one another. These are not selfish malcontents who want everything their own way. These are believers who love Jesus and they have a real concern for the purity and the ministry of the church. And y'all, the problem these guys bring up, it is a real problem that really needs attention and it needs attention fast. And the problem is this, when it comes to distributing food to the widows of the church, the Greek widows are being left out. Now, that is not a problem for the Jewish widows in the church, and this is an issue. This is something that the elders in the church, the apostles, they need to get on this right away because in this moment, what's being pointed out to them is, you guys, are, we're in violation of Scripture. We are in violation of the Word of God. As we do everything else, we're missing something, and the something is in the heart of God. How in the heart of God is this? Well, glad you asked, glad to tell you. Psalm 68.5 says this, the Lord is a father to the fatherless. Our God is a defender of widows. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Here's another one. 1 Timothy 5.3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And so, so you see this complaint, it's valid, it's legit, you know, it's not silly, it's not petty. This is a problem for the Greek widows, but it's not a problem for the Jewish widows. See, the Jewish widows, on the other hand, they are enjoying uh, the giving and, and, and the help of the church. You know, the church for the, for the Jewish widows, they're running a Meals on Wheels program. Saturday to Sunday, they are taking care of them. And so what's going to happen if this festers, if it's not addressed, this neglect for the Greek widows, if not corrected, it's going to go from a complaint to accusations of favoritism and prejudice. 
And you know what? It's going to be right. It, it could also turn into an emotional civil war between the Greek and, and, and the Jewish Christians in the church. Something's got to be done about this in Acts chapter 6. And I'll tell you this, this is one of these times in, in, in Scripture and in the church when things like that happen here. Here is where you find out a whole lot about your leadership, all right? You find out whether those you've called to be pastor and pastors, those you've elected to be elders and deacons, you find out whether they're mature or they're immature. Um, and, and I'll be more specific. You find out when a, when a real legitimate problem comes up, whether they're honest about it and they say, you know, we need to address this, or whether they turn into a bunch of spin doctors, you know? Hey, there's nothing to see here. You know, the problem's out there. Just y'all keep going about your business, and we're fine. I, we see both sides in church leadership quite often. You also see in church leadership whether these, these are men of God who will respond to a situation or react to a situation. And y'all know what I mean by react, don't you? overreact. You know that I'm talking about that. Um, and yes, if you're new here, I always move around like that. So be prepared at any moment for, you know, the, you also find out whether your leadership is motivated by fear or whether they're motivated by love. So our apostles here have a golden opportunity. Okay. In this moment, they can either shine or they can stink up the church. They, they've got an opportunity. And we have to understand that this complaint here. It is about food distribution, but it really is also about their leadership because in, in essence, what the people are saying is, look, we have taken in a whole lot of money in the church. You know, uh, apostles, if you'll flip back one chapter where we were right here, uh, people were selling real estate so that nobody would be in need. What's happening with that money? That, that's what's behind this. Also, here's another one. The people who are giving out the food to the widows, they're following somebody's direction or lack of direction. The buck stops with you. You're in charge. What are you going to do about this mess? Now, typically, in our, our life and times, most church leadership uh, systems, most church leaders, they have an answer for situations like this. There is, there is a pretty normal response that you can expect from church leadership, not all, thank God, but most, and uh, typically it's panic, okay? Oh my gosh, Pe people are complaining. We have a problem. Folks are, folks are in trouble. Stop whatever it is that we're doing as elders and deacons and, 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 and get on the problems. SOS, Mayday, all hands on deck and many other crises cliches, you know, let them roll. By the way, let me tell you this, this frantic style of church leadership, okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling on myself here, this frantic style of church leadership is why many pastors in America are wildly overloaded. You know, sometimes a, a leader from a denomination will come in or a guest preacher will come in, somebody not me, and, and, and this happens in all kinds of church, and they'll come in and they'll give a reprimand to the congregation, and they'll say stuff like, you know, church, if your pastor, okay, if he's, the, if he's the preacher and the counselor and the head of staff, you know, if, if he's the head of the complaint department, putting out fires all day long, if, if he's attending every event, visiting every sick person, running the entire visitation ministry by himself and doing all the follow-up, something is wrong. You need to change your expectations of your pastor. Now, 
Sometimes that's true, okay? But as an insider, as a guy who lives and moves and rubs elders, el elbows with a lot of pastors, I got to tell you the truth here. So often, that described condition, it is self-afflicted, all right? It is self-induced on the part of the pastors. Listen, so often, pastors do too much because they don't trust the church that God has brought into their midst. They don't trust the gifting of the body. They don't share the load. So often as pastors in a crisis situation, here is the best time of all to be led by the Spirit. So often we as pastors, we go out and we just try and do it in our own strength. And what we say to ourselves will never confess, so I'm confessing on behalf of all of us. The kind of things we say is, look, if I don't do it, nobody will do it. Or if I don't do it, nobody will do it right. It's a self-inflicted condition. You know, it takes two to dance, right? Well, most of the time. Well, uh, anyway. But, and, so listen, the question now is, what do these leaders do? What does this first generation of apostles do about this crisis situation? Verse 2, they immediately share the load with the church around them. They call other mature believers. It says they gather all the disciples, those who are following, pressing in, living a life of worship. They call them together, and then they're honest about the situation. They're also honest about their calling, and they're honest about their limitations. They say, guys, we got a problem in the church right now. It's a real problem. It needs immediate attention. And yet, God has called us to ministry of the Word. What is ministry of the Word? It is preaching. It is teaching. It is, it is seeing that the church is biblically sound and structured. And then in verse 4, I love that this didn't get left out. In verse 4, they bring in the matter of prayer. We are called to prayer, personal prayer, corporate prayer, intercessory prayer. Elders ought to be known. Pastors ought to be known by living a life of prayer. God has called us to this ministry. And as a leadership team, we're not going to do anything more and we're also not going to do anything less than this. In other words, abandoning what God has called us to do, that don't, that, that's not going to be good for anybody, right? So, and also understand this. When the apostles say that uh, they're not going to wait on tables, they are not saying that giving out food is beneath them. They're just saying, look, we cannot divert from what God has called us to do. This leadership team understands a very important spiritual dynamic. And by the way, I didn't copyright this. You can use this one, all right? What they understand is that your no can be just as anointed as your yes. They get it. Amen. I'll tell you something else they're seeing. I think they got a preview of the Lord of the Rings movie, the first one. And they're saying, we as leadership, we don't want to be like Bilbo Baggins in the first movie, like butter spread across way too much bread. We're just not going to do it. And I'll tell you, that is also, elders, I didn't run this by you before I said it, so you feel free to kill me later on. But this, this is often what's wrong with many elder groups out there in our life and times. Elders share the calling of the Acts 6 apostles, okay? Okay. This is their ministry. An elder a, a group of elders must not become a board of trustees. Oh, heaven forbid, no. They cannot become micromanagers all over the church. They can't be a group of power players trying to exercise their own will, like the pastor. 
A session is not called to do everything. Why are they not called to do everything? Because it leads, leads to the third attack of Satan. Does anybody want to guess what the third attack of Satan is? Starts with a D, ends with a distraction. Okay? It's distraction. It is simply distraction. It's the oldest trick in the book. This is what Satan seeks to do with believers, with those who are called up, raised up, being used by God. It is to distract us from our God-given calling and anointing and to get us to veer off course in something else, right? Get spread way too thin. Next thing you know, we're off course somewhere. And by the way, um, in verse, verse 3, look at this. The twelve respond, brothers and sisters, okay, and speaking to the disciples, yes, women are included in this, all right, brothers and sisters, here's what we do now in response to this, choose seven men full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and we're going to turn this matter, this problem, this, this hole in ministry over to them. We're going to entrust them with it. And we, as your leadership, we're going to keep our focus on the Word of God, on the ministry that God has given us. Verse 5, I love this. This proposal pleased the whole group. Everybody looks up and says, man, that's awesome. Now, why is the whole group so pleased with this? Well, simple, because leadership is trusting them, and they are entrusting them. So, these folks are going, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? We get to use our gifts we get to make decisions in the church. We get to rise up and, and, and take a real part and do something integral to help build the church. And so they do this. They choose seven men from among them, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit of God. They bring them to the apostles who confirm their choice. And they confirm their choice by laying hands on them and praying for them. And what they're doing is they're setting them apart for this, for this ministry of practical, hands-on ministry and proclamation of Christ. And if you're sitting there hearing all this and you're going, you know what? This magnificent seven, they sound a whole lot like modern-day deacons. Did anybody have that thought? Go ahead and admit it. You're right, okay? This is... He's right. It's absolutely true. This is the birthplace of deacons. This is the origin of God raising up this other office of deacon. But I want to be real careful before we, before I say any more about deacons to point this out. Biblically from Acts 6, a deacon, when we're talking about a deacon, we are talking about someone who is so full of the Spirit of God and so full of wisdom that you can see it. Someone who is so following Jesus Christ that when we look around for those who are to serve, we go, oh, this is a no-brainer. It's so-and-so. Why? Because they love like Jesus. They move toward the needy like Jesus. They, they have a heart of compassion like Jesus. And when they move toward people, they consistently not only serve the need, but they proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, well, Steve, you sort of slid that last part in there about proclaiming Christ. We see the practical here. But, but what about this proclaiming Christ part? Is that just something that gets added on? Absolutely not. Verse 7 says this, so the Word of God spread because of this move. So what, what I want us to understand this morning is that when it comes to deacons, being a deacon in the church of Jesus Christ, it is not 
glorified social justice. It is promoting Christ through service. And you guys are going to see that even more clearly together with me when we get to Stephen, the other Stephen in two weeks. So, here we go, all right? Pulling it all together. The apostles have just turned back this attack of Satan. They have returned once again to the ministry of prayer and the Word. They have called forth those gifted and, and, and called to practical service. Well, what happens as a result? Well, what happens as a result with this realignment is the church takes off all over again. You know, the, the, the church has gone from this level to this level to this level to this level, you know, a whole lot of other levels. It goes to an even higher level. Listen to this in verse 7. The number of disciples increased rapidly, and many priests even became obedient to the faith. The church continues to increase. It continues to multiply. Now it's like Super Black Friday with people coming into the church but even this little tidbit about priests, priests who were once opposed to the church, you know, the high and mighty religious who, they, you know, Jesus messed up their, their, their whole business of an institutional church, and they were opposing the church, even many of them are coming to the faith. Many of them are thawing out, they're, they're coming to Christ. And, and the point here is, look, when we are faithful to what God has called us, when we don't become a sucker for distraction in the church, even those who used to be unreachable now become reachable as we are faithful. That's pretty good news to me, at least. Very good news. So here we go. Good stuff, right? So how's KPC doing? How are we doing? When we compare ourselves to the first century church, specifically in Acts chapter 6, how are we doing? Okay, gulp. As your pastor, I could not be any more encouraged than I am right now. I am so excited just going through this and looking at our leadership, you guys. Um, and, and listen, I don't want you to get me wrong. We have a long way to go as leadership. We have not arrived. If we ever think we do, I, I'll give out some bats and you can beat us up with them. But we're not there. But listen, over the last three years, the strides that we have made as elders are astounding. Three years ago when I came here, it was a time of transition. I mean, it was a time when, you know, we, we had staff issues, we'd been through a lot, and elders were doing just about everything. Honestly, they had to be doing just about everything. But, um, you know, having meetings over crisis and minutiae, um, before I got here, the, you know, meeting till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, there was even one till 5 a.m., I think. I mean, just all that kind of stuff going on. But what I've seen over the last three years are elders who are returning to prayer, returning to the ministry of the Word. And listen, even when I forget sometimes in a meeting or I get too businessy, our elders will say, you know, we need to stop and pray right now. We're doing this in our own strength. We need a season of prayer. By this whole idea of the, uh, the second Tuesday of the month is fasting and prayer, that came from one of our elders, Right? So, I mean, these guys are just, they're just rising up in a heart of prayer. They're, they they want to be faithful to the Word of God. And I'll tell you, when it comes to church oversight, ministry of the Word, and prayer, our guys are really hitting it. And I, I, you just, I'm telling you, it feels so good to say that as a pastor. Our deacons, let's talk about these guys for a minute. 
Um, Everybody knows that our deacons already faithfully, faithfully serve the needy. We've had Samaritan teams for quite a while. There's the food pantry. Our our guys take the love of Jesus and they practically, I mean, everything from building hedges to, you know, trimming lawns. If you are a widow in the church, you've received ministry from them. These guys go to, to, to people who don't know Christ. They've been doing that forever. But I started attending their meetings about six months ago. And I was alarmed to discover that these guys were talking about evangelism. Our deacons had looked at the Word of God together, and they said, you know, all this reaching out practically is good, but we are called to proclaim Christ. And two meetings ago, I went, and they were were beginning to train themselves in evangelism, training themselves in how to do evangelism, because a loaf of bread isn't enough if it doesn't come from the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ. They they, They had a retreat. You know, this weekend they had a retreat, Friday and Saturday. A whole section of their retreat was nothing but let's learn how to do evangelism. Let's learn how to ask the questions. Let's discover what scriptures. You guys, our deacons are doing it. You know, Acts chapter 6. These guys are doing it. And it's so great because it's like, it's like when your kids clean their room and you didn't tell them to do. It's just that much better. You know, it's coming straight out of their hearts. And I'll tell you, with, with leadership, with this kind of commitment to prayer, to ministry of the Word, you know, to, to officers who are saying, man, we are going to be out there loving people, but we're going to make sure the love doesn't come without Jesus Christ. You have that going on in the church. Folks, you got dynamite happening, especially with the movement of prayer within the church. I, I, I just, I look at this and I think, God, the promises, the promises you made to the church, Lord, they're at ours, not only as we realign programming, but deep within the heart of church, we make these kinds of adjustments. So elders and deacons, man, I love you to pieces. Thank you. Your church thanks you today. All right. But let's get a little more personal. This morning, let's ask a couple of questions as we wrap this up. This morning, do you know your God-given calling? First thing we learn about God in Genesis is in the beginning, God what? Held a church service. God created, right? Our God is a creative God. Our God made you in a certain way with a certain shape, with certain passions, talents, and giving and, and gifts. Do you know your God-given calling? If you do not know what God has called you to do in the kingdom of heaven, you know what today is for you? Discovery Day. It is time to find out what God has called you to. Now listen, before you jump up and and run into the office and say, I want to take a spiritual gifts inventory, I don't believe that's where we discover. That's where it begins. I believe how we discover what God has called us to, we discover it out of a time of seeking God. I think it starts with quiet, asking God the question seeking in prayer, reading the Word of God, listening and reflecting. I think the first way that we begin to discover what God has called us to is we get still and know that He is God, and suddenly a whole lot of light bulbs start coming on. I'll tell you another way, a real practical way you can discover what God has called you to. Okay, look around the room. What is the room filled with? People. There are godly people in this room, mature believers, brothers and sisters who know you. Sometimes a way to find out, you know, sometimes we're the most blind to our own giftings and our own faults. Talk to somebody who knows you, somebody who loves you. Ask them the question, what do you see in me? 
What, what do you see God raising up in me? When I speak, what do you hear? I guarantee you, you'll be amazed to find out, oh my gosh, you know, the, the, yes, that's right. God confirms his calling through the body of Christ. He does. Talk to one another and get ready to find out something amazing. And then after you do those two things, come in and take a spiritual gifts inventory and let it just be icing on the cake. You know, let God use that. And if you come in first, I'm not going to throw you out, but, you know, just use all of those things. We need to know what God has called us to. Now, if you know your calling, here's a second question. Painful question for me. If you know your calling, are you being distracted from your calling in life? Happens all the time. Life gets crazy. Kids go nuts. Bills pile up. Job becomes a nightmare. You know, frantic people around us make us frantic. Guys, I'm telling you, one of the things the enemy of our souls does to us, he can't take our salvation away, okay? He can't remove the fact that you are a child of God, but he wants to distract you from what God has called you to do because when we walk in what God has called us to do, there is anointing there. He doesn't want that anointing. He doesn't want that effect out on the streets. He doesn't want your neighbor to get saved. It's just a fact. So are we distracted from our calling? If so, it's time to return to our calling. That beautiful little word that we use so often around here is repentance. Turn from all that other stuff and just walk right back into what God called you to do. Some of us, I, there was a time in my life where I discovered I had neglected what God had called me to do for about 10 years of my life. I said, God, I'm miserable. I just feel so lost as a Christian. Where are you, Lord? And then God answers back and goes, uh, the question is, where are you, Jonah, Steve? Uh, I, I've called you to do this. You're over here in the weeds looking for golf balls or something, right? But see, in the grace and the mercy of God, you know what happened? As soon as I turned back into my calling, God didn't say, all right, now is 10 years to make it up. Or I added a little time to the sentence. This will take you 15 years to get back to where you wandered away. The thing about God, when we repent and turn right back into it, boom, it was like, it never, it was like there never was that season of distraction. That's the goodness of God. That's the graciousness of God, the compassion of God. Because I tell you, if we live life distracted, you know what it's like? It's like running on a gerbil wheel. Okay, has anybody ever done that? Good, because I'll be asking you some questions, all right? But, it's, you know, it's like running on a gerbil wheel, right? It doesn't matter how fast you run on a gerbil wheel. Where do you go? Nowhere. The scenery's always the same. A distracted spiritual life is life on a gerbil wheel. And I'm going to tell you this. You were made for more than that. You were made for more than that. You were made for more than that. And they're ready to see what you got. So we're going to invite the praise team up here. I didn't give them any time to set up, but I want to pray for this body, all right? And as I pray for you, uh, there are prayer teams that will, that will come up. And if you need prayer on this matter or anything else, come up and pray. We love to pray here. We're going to have one closing song. And um, I, why don't I pray now, Shiloh? We'll worship together. People will get prayer, and then we'll just go after that, all right? Does that sound like a plan? All right. How long do you need me to pray to make sure you're ready? No, I'm kidding. All right. God, we love you. God, we love your ways. And Father, I, I say this a lot, but there is never condemnation for the body of Christ. For those in Christ, the issue is not have we been distracted. We're human beings. This is kind of something we do really well, all of us. But Father, this morning, we just want to recognize the fact that distraction can destroy our destiny. And Father, we are a people of destiny. 
Lord, you look at us and you call us names like priests and kings, sons and daughters of God. You call us children of light. Lord, your vision of us is beautiful. What you have planned for us is glorious. Father, you moved mountains. Lord, you defeated armies. God, you brought deliverance through people just like us all throughout Scripture. And Lord, we long to be people who have set our face like a flint to the cross of Jesus Christ. We long to be people who have a singular heart for the kingdom of God, this great commission. God, it is great. We say it's great today in Jesus' name. Lord, we we embrace this greatest commandment to love. And Father, I thank you that you love us so much and you love your kingdom so much that you will not give your church a free pass. So Lord, today, by faith, we open up the doors of our hearts. Father, by faith, we rise up as an army. Father, by faith, we just say, God, would you fill us? Would you remind us? Would you renew us? Would you restore us? God, would you use us? And Lord, today, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for elders and deacons who are an example. Lord God, they're not playing power politics. They're not in love with the fact that they have a label in the church or they don't see themselves at the top of the food chain. But God, they want to do ministry. Lord, they want want to reach the world in Jesus' name. God, you've given us living examples of what it means to follow. And I just pray for our leadership. I pray that you would bless them in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you would lead them in Jesus' name. And Father, one of the marks of a great leader is that they are a great follower first. So Lord, for those of us who are being called into leadership all over the sanctuary, God, help our our leading in days to come to be defined by the fact that we follow Jesus Christ. We live this thing out. We are in love. We are in love with our Savior. And we just can't keep it to ourselves. In Christ's name, let's worship together.